Father, we have gathered here in the name of Jesus because you have touched our hearts and you have made us brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're so grateful for the word of God which we hold in our hands today. And Lord, we desire to understand you through the word. We know that uh, your wisdom is unfathomable, that your character is far beyond the abilities that we have to grasp, and yet you've revealed much truth about yourself, truth that we need to know and to make part of our being. So Lord, as we look at your word, we pray that we'll have greater understanding. As we see what you have done and what you did in the life of Isaac and Rebekah and, and uh, Jacob, I pray, Father, that we will see the uh, transcendence and yet the eminence of God in all of this and recognize, Lord, that you stand beside us each day. Even as you said that you were with Isaac, we know that Jesus said, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. And so, Father, may we be strengthened that we might go forth each day knowing that you're with us and that you'll strengthen us as we face the struggle, the battle that goes on around us. And pray, Father, that we will find the victory in Christ. Now, Father, we commit this time to you and pray for your wisdom in Christ's name. Amen. If you'll turn to Genesis chapter 26, reading at verse 23. Genesis chapter 26, reading at verse 23. Then he went up from there to Beersheba. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father, Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant, Abraham. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord. And he pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. Last week we got to this uh, passage and we began to look a little bit at what God was saying here. Isaac had spent many months, possibly even years, in the land of Gerar. And there, as we noted, he had failed even as his father Abraham had better part of a century before in the affair, in the matter of his wife. But now he has moved back to Beersheba. And it, we're told that the night of the day that they arrived in Beersheba, God appeared to Isaac. This was the second time that we have record of God specifically appearing to Isaac. And he gives him this profound promise that we read in verse 24. It's very interesting that as you read through Scripture and as you see the specific words given by God in a manifestation, they tend to be short, to-the-point statements. God doesn't go into great long orations when He appears. He gives very specific promises which are what we would call pithy. <laughs> they have tremendous amount of of uh, importance in what is said. First of all, he says, I am Elohim. I am the Godhead, uh, the God that has been worshipped by Abraham down through these years, and which you have come to understand through your father and, of course, through your own contact with me. 
And then he, after he, he, he announces who he is, he says, do not fear. And we pointed out, or I pointed out last time, that that meant not only don't fear in the sense of, oh, I'm standing in the presence of God, but don't fear about what is to take place shortly in your life. Because why? Why should he not fear? Because God said, I am with you. I am with you. God was going to walk with this man Isaac, as he already had, but specifically would in the years ahead, as God, the true God, walks with all of his true followers. And that, of course, is what makes the, the true faith so different from other religions. Other religions, they're seeking to appease their God, somehow to make their God happy, because if they don't, he'll smack them down or do something terrible. We have a God who lives in our hearts, who walks with us. We have the parakletos who comes alongside and takes us through every step of our lives. And then, fourthly, he says, I will bless you. And this was the point we ended class on last time. This blessing not only included material, physical blessings, which were obvious, and that's why the Philistines came, as we'll read in the next passage, to, to visit him and to make a treaty with him, because they saw with their eyes the blessing of God upon this man. He was wealthy, he was famous, he was powerful. But the real blessing, the key blessing, is that he becomes the transmitter of the covenant, he is the covenant man. He is the one through whom God is going to facilitate, ultimately, his plan of redemption. Now, obviously, Isaac doesn't understand all those details. We have them before us. But he knew that somehow there was a blessing beyond the physical. And, of course, as we noted from Ephesians, that blessing included, of course, eternal life, which is the greatest blessing that God puts into our lives. He would be now a key person in God's plan. Whatever that meant to him. Again, we're, we're constantly, I'm constantly reminded at least of uh, the statement in Hebrews that Abraham was looking for the city whose builder and maker was God. Whatever that meant to Abraham, whatever that now means to Isaac, he is on that same path. We have a tendency sometimes, particularly some quote, scholars of the Old Testament, <clears throat> to, to look at the Old Testament in uh, terms as if it were uh, the people who lived then had almost no understanding of God at all, a very simplistic understanding. I think their understanding of God was in greater depth than is sometimes assumed. And, and we get a little inklings of that when we do read certain New Testament passages relative to to uh, Noah or Abraham or one of those, which seemed to indicate that they knew more about their God than we have sometimes assumed were descendants. Now, many people today say, well, no, wait a minute. We don't need any multiplication. We're living in a world that's growing too fast already. We've got too many people who are out there trying to fulfill single-handedly the uh, command to multiply and replenish the world or the earth. Uh, there's great fear today, but we have to put it in the context, obviously, of the society of that time. To be blessed with children was of greater consequence to the people of this society, and, and really often in this society, even in our day, than even material wealth. What did it do, what, what good was it to be a, a wealthy uh, uh, nomadic sheik 
and to have no offspring, to have no heir, but to, to have a quiver full, if you will, of children was of greater blessing than to have vast wealth in the eyes of many of that day. And so this was a very desirable thing. It was joyful to Isaac to know that that promise which had been made to Abraham was being made to him and would be fulfilled ultimately through his descendants. This, of course, was a reaffirmation of God's promise to Abraham to make his descendants as numerous as the stars of the heaven. Notice how profound this had to be, though. A promise made to a man who was the only child of his father and his mother and who himself had only two children. You start thinking, oh, wait a minute, my descendants are going to be like the stars of the heaven, but I'm the only child who's, who's going to carry on this and I only have two sons. We're off to a very poor start, Lord, it might seem in his thinking. It was an incredible promise, but he believed God. And we keep coming across that statement uh, in, in Scripture. He believed God. And of course, it's read earlier in the book of Genesis. And God therefore imputed righteousness to Noah, for example, and to Abraham because they believed God. And by implication to Isaac and to Jacob and to Joseph and the others who believed God and walked in obedience and therefore God imputed to them righteousness. God would do all of this on the basis, of course, first of all, of his plan, but also, also on the basis of the fact that Isaac was a man of faith and obedience, and God was fulfilling his promise to Abraham. So what is Isaac's response? Isaac's response, as we read in the 25th verse, is fourfold. First of all, he built an altar. Literally, a place of sacrifice. This was exactly the same response that was exhibited by Abraham when God spoke to him, as we read back in the 12th chapter of the book of Genesis. Abraham also built an altar to God. Now, whether Isaac used mud bricks or, or stones, whatever he used to construct this altar, <coughs> the purpose of the altar was to serve as a reminder of this encounter to God and as a monument to his commitment to God. Many times in the Old Testament we read that the children of Israel built a monument. That a monument, of course, was to be a reminder to those who followed of the commitment, of the encounter, whatever had occurred at that place at that time. So he built an altar. Secondly, and extremely importantly, the scripture tells us that he called upon the name of the Lord. Literally, he publicly proclaimed Yahweh to be his God. His was not a secret faith, something that he garnered in the corner and was fearful to tell anybody. He was before that altar, before all who would watch, proclaiming that Yahweh was his God. Now the word name that is used here, as it was used by the Hebrews later on, meant much more 
than merely a title or an identifier of some sort. You know, this is Betty as opposed to Sally, so you don't get too, too confused. No. The, the word name here in, refers to the very essence of God himself. He called upon the name of the Lord, meaning he called upon all that God is, was, ever shall be, the essence of this mighty one. It encompassed all that God had revealed of himself to that point in time which Isaac himself understood. His power, his authority, his majesty, his grace, his loving kindness, his mercy, all of these uh, characteristics, these attributes of God that had been revealed up to this point and had been carried down by oral tradition, by whatever means, to Isaac. All these things were included in the name of Yahweh. Let me read uh, uh, just a simple statement made in Psalm 22. Psalm 22, 22, I will tell of thy name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise thee. And that means more than just simply saying, I believe in God. It means that we are proclaiming what God has revealed himself to be as our understanding of the one we worship and love and follow. In the assembly, before those who proclaim the name also, but all, by interpretation it could also be before those who do not. And this was what Isaac was doing. In Micah 4.5, Jonah Micah Nahum, Though all the peoples walk, each in the name of his God, as for us, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. We're going to walk in the name. Obviously, that's got to mean a whole lot more than just an identifier. Just to separate Yahweh from Baal or Molech or something else. It, it refers to we're walking in the essence, the reality of what God is. All that is revealed himself to be. That is what we are accepting and that is what we're walking in. We're gathered here today in the presence of God and, and I trust we believe he is here. And he is speaking to our hearts according to his desire for each of us and according to our response to him and our openness to him. We've gathered in his name to worship him, we sing. And what is in that name? Well, of course, the passage in Philippians is one of the most often quoted passages relative to who Christ is. Philippians 2, 9. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father.
again, more than just the, the J-E-S-U-S, -S, you know, more than just five letters. We're talking about who he is. What does that name stand for? That name which is above every name, of course, stands for the Almighty God, the Prince of Peace. In effect, Isaac was proclaiming to the whole world all that he understood about the true and the living God and saying, I believe and I walk in the truth of this one who has revealed himself to me. This is one of the reasons why in the third commandment of the Ten Commandments that, were, that God warned his people not to take his name in vain. It's not just a matter of tossing a word around. I don't know about you, but I grew up in a home where, you know, I'd heard a lot about God and Jesus, but not in church. And, you know, you get to the point where you're, you're, it doesn't register much anymore. It just becomes vocabulary that you've heard so much, especially when it starts when you're a baby and goes all the way up through your teen years. And what does it really mean to take God's name in vain. The name is not just a word, but the holy pronouncement of all that God is. To take God's name in vain is to trivialize the person and the authority of God Almighty Himself. And, and, and when we hear it, it ought to just strike to our hearts and, and, and uh, cause us to, to be revulsed by, as we hear God's name taken in, in such a way. And I know some of us work in environments where, you know, you, you can't go around correcting everybody, uh, but certainly it will have an impact upon us and hopefully turning us ever stronger to our faith and commitment to this one who is holy and who is mighty. He called upon the name of the Lord, and then what did he do? It says he pitched his tent there. He pitched his tent there. His, his encounter with God was so profound, so deep was his commitment that he wanted to physically remain at the place where God again manifested himself to him. To him this became hallowed ground. Remember when Moses came before the burning bush, the angel of the Lord said, take off the sandals from your feet because you're standing on holy ground. Now, you know, holy ground, dirt's still dirt and rocks are still rock, but the presence of God makes even the mundane special when God is there. And that's why when the temple implements were made, sure, they were made out of gold and silver and, and uh, various fabrics and so forth, just, just things that were relatively common. I mean, the pagans also used these things in their worship, but these became holy because of the presence of God because they were committed to the service of the true and the living God who is holy and whose name is blessed forever. I think that it's, uh, when, when you think about a person making a commitment, maybe it's your own commitment or someone else's commitment, to a certain extent the genuineness of an individual's commitment to God can be measured by his desire to be near God and near God's people. 
A person who says, I have come to know the Lord and I love Him, I walk with Him, but I can't stand God's people. There's something wrong with that commitment. Oh, sure, God's people have got their problems. God's people uh, fail often. But you've got to love God's people because God does. Uh, again, we were listening to uh, Lutzer out of uh, Moody Church this morning. And he was saying, if you really love God, you will love what God loves. And you'll hate what God hates. And if we don't love God's people, and we don't love to worship in God's house, then our love of God is suspect. You know, the person who says, well, I can go out in the trees and, and I can worship God as well as in, the, in a church. Yeah, true. But if that's your habit, if that, there's something wrong there. There's something very wrong there. Because we want to worship with God's people where people of like mind come together and proclaim the name of the Lord. There should be a magnetism there if we're truly in love with God. Because he's truly in love with his people. He pitched his tent there. What did that mean? You know, we could say, well, that's a pretty simple thing. I've watched, you know, a movie of Indians pitching their tent. You know, this 10 minutes, they've got their teepee up and they're all ready to go. No big deal, right? Well, there's much more behind this phrase than seems uh, at, at first appearance. Uh, this was a great process. It wasn't pitching of one tent. It was the pitching of hundreds of tents. Because remember, Isaac's household was multiplied thousands. The number of animals to be pastured was tens of thousands. And so we're talking about hundreds of tents being pitched and a whole encampment being established in the process. So the decision to move, the decision to stay, the decision that this is to be a place we're going to be for a while had to be made with great care because there was a lot of work involved in establishing the encampment of Isaac's entourage. Lastly, and in light of the verses that we studied last week, uh, kind of almost humorous, it says Isaac's servants dug a well. So what's new these men were well practiced at digging wells. They had dug a lot of wells, as we remember from the passage last week. And uh, this well, fortunately, like the one just before it, was not contested. The digging of a well, of course, signifies a measure of permanence. You're probably not going to dig a well if you're just staying overnight. A lot of work to digging a well. You know, who, you know, who knows how many feet you had to go down, depending on where the water, water table was in that particular place. And uh, so it was a matter of being there. It also, of course, underscored the scarcity of water in the Negev, the, the steppe land. Uh, water wasn't just flowing across the surface all year round. In fact, most of the, of the wadis through that area are, uh, only possess water a portion of the year, usually in the, in the winter and springtime, and not a great amount of it at that. We remember as we stood at uh, one time on the, on the overlook, looking over the wilderness of Zin. And it's, it's a vast area. I mean, it seems vast when you're standing there. Nothing in Israel is vast. I mean, you can stick all of Israel into California 15 times. 
But it seems vast as you stand there and you look out over it. It's almost like looking over Death Valley. You know, you get that kind of feeling. It's not that hot, fortunately. But uh, you look down there and way down in the bottom, you can see this little wadi and uh, we were there looking over it in January. So there was a kind of a trickle running down through there, but this was not a raging uh, current of any sort. Uh, the people back in the Midwest would just love for such a water flow right about now <coughs> uh, in, in their particular area. But uh, wells were very essential, therefore, in maintaining life uh, in, in this steppe land. Now, was this the reopening of a well that had previously been dug? If we go back to the 21st chapter of Genesis, verse 30, we read this, and he said, You shall take these seven ewe lambs from my hand in order that it may be a witness to me that I dug this well. Therefore he called the place Beersheba, because there the two of them took an oath, the covenant of the seven. Uh, and so this, this well was dug. Was this the reopening of uh, Abraham's well? Well, well, as we look at the next uh, passage, we'll, we'll see what uh, is probable here. Okay, 26 chapter, verse 26. Then Abimelech came to him from Gerar with his advisor Ahuzah and Phicol, the commander of his army. And Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me since you hate me and have sent me away from you? And they said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you, so we said, Let there now be an oath between us, even between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have, not done, and, and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. Then he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. And in the morning they arose early and exchanged oaths, then Isaac sent them away, and they departed from him in peace. Now it came about on the same day that Isaac's servants came in and told him about the well which they had dug, and said to him, We have found water. So he called it Sheba, therefore the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. This event, if it sounds like something you've not too long ago read or studied, it's because that's true. <laughs> In the 21st chapter of Genesis, where it just referred back to, we have a very similar event taking place. And this is almost like a carbon copy uh, event occurring. The first event occurred when Isaac was a very young bo boy, and it impacted, of course, Abraham and the earlier Abimelech. Now, in Isaac's day, the descendant of that earlier Abimelech, uh, whether it be his son or his grandson, has come to pay an official visit to Isaac. And he brought along, to, to make sure that Isaac knew that this was an important visit, he brought along the royal court. He brought along Ahuzah, his prime minister. He brought along Phicol, which was again like Abimelech, probably a title, the commander of his army. He probably even brought along a detachment of the army just to make it look real official, to impress Isaac. Notice that Isaac's greeting to uh, Abimelech is something less than enthusiastic. <laughs> you know, he says, Why have you come to me since you hate me? 
Uh, can you imagine you go knock on your friend's door and they open the door and say, why have you come here since you don't like me? You, you probably wouldn't feel real welcome in the house at that particular point. And uh, I, I'm sure that uh, Abimelech was taken a little bit off guard by this, but he had reason to know why Isaac spoke to him this way, because he really isn't telling the truth here when he says in verse 29, just as we have not touched you. Now, that's true. He hadn't literally done him any direct harm and have done uh, to you nothing but good, which isn't true because we just read uh, last week the passages where they kept fighting over the wells. He dug a well and they took it away from him. He dug another well and took it away from him. That's not exactly friendly activity on behalf of, uh, of Isaac. So he's very suspicious. He, he's suspicious of the Philistines because of what he interpreted to be unfriendly treatment in just the previous weeks before he moved back to Beersheba. Now, why are the Philistines doing this? Well, they feel like they need to mend some fences. Uh, Abimelech knows that they have not been as friendly as they should have been. And they also certainly feel probably a measure of guilt because Isaac has been the peacemaker. He has gone out of his way in each instance to avoid conflict. Now the scripture teaches us that if we do good to those who do evil to us, that we heap coals of fire on their heads. Abimelech was apparently feeling a measure of guilt here knowing that he hadn't really done what was right in each situation, and because God had obviously blessed Isaac, he could be in big trouble. So he's come to mend fences. The Philistines were superstitious. Oh, they had their gods, and, and they worshipped in their pagan ways, and uh, they knew something of the God of Abraham because of the earlier event involving Abraham and now Isaac, and they knew this God to be powerful, and certainly they were willing to include him in their pantheon. And they were probably a little more fearful of him maybe than some others, and that's why they're doing this. God has obviously blessed Isaac. They're not exactly on good terms with Isaac. Maybe we better get on good terms with Isaac so Isaac doesn't curse us through his God. Seems to be the thinking behind this, at least. Now, remember, Isaac had not been exactly honest with the Philistines in his initial contact because he had lied concerning Rebekah. But that aside, it appears that he had lived a life faithful to his God before them. So there was a witness, as much to whatever extent it had been damaged by the lie, we don't know, but his prosperity, uh, his power, the obvious hand of God upon him had made a great impact upon these people. And so they have come to make a treaty. One cannot always tell where another individual stands with God by the words of that individual. But you can usually tell by the fruit of the life of that individual. Isaac lied concerning Rebekah, and that was not a good witness. But the faithfulness of his life spoke louder in the ears of the Philistines than that, those words, than the lie that he had spoken did, apparently. And uh, as I was thinking about that, it brought to my mind that uh, well-known passage in Matthew. And I think it does us good to be reminded of uh, relatively frequently. 
In Matthew chapter 7, beginning at verse 15, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruits. As Christians, we're not to go around, as the scripture says, judging other people. In the sense of, aha, look at them, I am better than they. But we do judge in the sense that we see by their fruits as to whether they truly are the children of God or not, whether they are true prophets of God or preachers of God or not. They may say good things, but does their life bear good fruit or does their life bear bad fruit? In Isaac's case, it's obvious that although his words had not been a good witness, at least initially, uh, his life bore good fruit. And thus, although they were pagans and didn't have spiritual insight, they could at least see these fruit, this fruit there in Isaac's life. And so they came. It's really important for us that as we hear the many voices that uh, come upon us through the course of our lives, that we look at the fruit and don't just listen to the words. So many cults today have arisen because people listen to the words and don't look for the fruit. How could you ever be drawn into a group such as the Waco group if you really looked for fruit? How could you be drawn into a Jim Jones thing if you really looked at the fruit and didn't just listen to the words? I think for true believers, the Holy Spirit is there to, to fly red flags in front of us. If we are familiar with Scripture, which is one of the reasons we need to be familiar with Scripture, when falsehood is being paraded as truth, in the name of God. And there's so much of that today. Scripture teaches us that in the end times there will be many running around claiming in effect to be Messiah. And whether this is the end times or just part of the broader end times or not, we have a lot of messiah, false messiahs running around. A lot of people are following them. And you just wonder how in the world can they believe that stuff? But people are searching. And, and they have this, this great need inside. And many of them are not wise enough to be, quote, fruit inspectors, if you will. <laughs> we had a couple in, down in the Bay Area here in our Sunday school class who kept saying, well, we don't judge, but we're fruit inspectors. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> well, there is an extent to which we do need to be fruit inspectors. <laughs> we need to be inspecting our own fruit most of all, of course. The Philistines were therefore impressed. They were impressed by what they had seen in Isaac's life, and therefore they asked for a mutual non-aggression pact, if you will. And they sealed it with a treaty of friendship and a banquet, which Isaac threw. Now, why does Isaac throw a banquet for these people? Because Isaac is a peacemaker. And he again takes a step towards peace. 
And he throws a banquet for these pagans and makes an oath or with them that they will not be hostile to one another. Within one century, at this same site, Beersheba, two such treaties were made between the family of Abraham and the king of Gerar. The first by Abraham at this very same site, and now by Isaac, with the descendant of that first Abimelech, making another peace treaty between himself and the Philistines. It was also the place, this place Beersheba, where both Abraham and now Isaac formally and openly proclaimed their commitment to Yahweh. So Beersheba becomes a very, very important place in the early history of the Hebrew nation. If you go there today, Beersheba is a, a ruin. And there is a well there which they claim to be that original well. It's many miles from the modern city of Beersheba. You can see modern Beersheba from the site of old Beersheba. But it's an interesting place to stand and to think back there in the, in the Negev that this is where God was proclaimed by Abraham and proclaimed by Isaac to be their God and whereby the covenant was furthered. Isaac was satisfied here by the fact that his desire for friendship with the Philistines was obviously brought to fruition. All of his peacemaking efforts had worked, and uh, peace was now established between himself and the Philistines. And then he was further encouraged by the fact that they came trotting in and saying, Ha! We've got water! We've dug, and we have water. Now, I said earlier, do we know whether this was a new well or was this the well of Abraham that was redug? Well, you know, we can't know positively, but I think the evidence here uh, is that it was the original well redug because he calls it Sheba, which is a variant of Sheba, meaning seven. And uh, it says, therefore, the place is called Beersheba to this day. But as you look back in, in Genesis 21, it was already called that uh, by Abraham. Uh, therefore, he called the place Beersheba, and they took the oath there. So it seems most likely that what has happened is they have redug, reopened the old well of Abraham, and the oath was taken, therefore, at the same exact spot. Verses 34 and 35. <clears throat> when Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, the daughter of Biri, the Hittite, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. And they brought grief to Isaac and Rebekah. Interesting little postscript to this chapter, is it not? This whole story of peacemaking, and now this rather sour note to, to end the chapter. Isaac, the man of peace, who had had two face-to-face -face encounters with the living God, who had publicly proclaimed the name of God, of Yahweh, whose life testified of the blessing of God, had a son who was a rebel. Does that seem very profound to any of us? 
Or does that sound like the story you've heard many times? At 40 years of age, Esau was a bigamist. Not only that, rather than marrying someone who might be amenable to the beliefs of his family, he married two pagan Hittite women. Now, he was fully aware of how carefully Abraham had sought for a wife for Isaac. And the whole account of how the, the servant had gone up and, and been led of God to Rebekah and Rebekah had been brought back. He knew that story and he knew the reason that that had taken place to maintain the integrity of the covenant people. But he, but, but his action here clearly showed his contempt for what he knew to be true, his contempt for God and contempt for for his family. He rebelled against both God and family. Such flagrant, willful disobedience to the revealed will of God is idolatry because it denies the lordship of God himself. To know God's will to know clearly what God's will is, and then to move directly in opposition to it is an act of self-deification. I proclaim myself to be, in effect, God. I will not do His will. I will do my will. And my will is going to be the opposite of His will. It's a direct act of self-deification. And God gives clear warning about that. The Ten Commandments, he says, Thou shalt have no other God before me. And then, of course, that passage which is so uh, explicit concerning the importance of obedience and sacrifice in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Samuel chapter 15, verses 22 and 23. This, of course, is where... Um, Saul, uh, Samuel uh, rebukes Saul for his disobedience. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. What does God want from his people? Obedience. What does he not need from his people if they're disobedient? Sacrifice. Meaningless. And later on in the prophets, so often the voice thundered from heaven. Why, I hate these things which you are bringing to me because it's not from your heart. You're trying to buy me off as the pagans buy off their gods. You don't appease the Almighty. We must obey the Almighty. This, these two brothers, I, Esau and uh, Jacob were raised in the same godly home. 
but the one rejected the authority of God and the other accepted the authority of God. What is the difference? Why is this? Well, certainly we, there are truths that apply here that are important. It tells us that your children aren't just going to accept what you believe by osmosis. Just because they were born in a Christian home doesn't make them Christians. We are well aware of that. But a great deal of prayer is needed. A great deal of specific training, hopefully by both parents consistently. Which, of course, was not true in this home, was it? Children need to hear the undivided truth. Not only audibly in their ears from both parents, but they need to see it lived in the lives of both parents. That doesn't, of course, ultimately guarantee that every child will walk in the way of the Almighty, but it sure makes the, increases the probability. And the fact that you may not have a united home doesn't necessarily thus mean that the children will not walk in the way of God either. Because sometimes there is a home which is badly divided as this home, only even worse, where one is a believer and the other is not. Or where you're a single parent. God blesses and intervenes in ways that are beyond our understanding many times. So we can't just set out a rule and say, if you do this and you do this, automatically this is the answer. But this is what God's ideal would be. And you see this throughout the Old Testament. God wanted the Father to be the high priest of the home and to lead the home in the way it should go. And to write uh, the truths of God on the forehead and the doorpost and, and to teach it. And of course, the assumption was that the wife was in full agreement and supportive of all of this. This is the way it ought to be. But not always is it. And God sometimes will intervene in a miraculous way when it is not to preserve the souls of the children. But not every true believer who has walked in the way of God and who has had an undivided home has every child turn out in, in the way of the Lord either. And you look at some of the great leaders of the church and you see how Sometimes the great leaders of the church have had children have been total rebels. And you wonder why. Well, it's again because there aren't hard and fast rules that you push this button, this happens. You do this thing and this is always the, the, the response. But to do it the way God has outlined to do it is the way to, to, to make it as most likely as possible that your children would go in the way of the Lord. Unfortunately, Jacob and Esau's parents were divided. They had taken sides concerning their two sons. Isaac loved Esau, Rebekah loved Jacob, and there was division in the home. Somehow, Jacob made it through that. Oh, Jacob has a rocky road ahead, but Jacob is God's covenant man. Esau doesn't make it through. Now, whether even if they had been united, he'd have made it through or not is, you know, un uncertain. Very possibly he wouldn't. He had the heart of a rebel. But this division was the hardest on Esau. He suffered the most from this. And his marriages compounded the problem. 
Not only would paganism be constantly in his life now because he has married these pagan wives, but his children will be cut off from the truth because he doesn't know the truth and certainly his wives are not going to teach the truth. And so his children will have no exposure to the truth. What, what, what does that mean? There is really something profound in this. That as you look down through the pages of the Old Testament it becomes more and more clear. Let me read a couple of verses, first of all, from Malachi, the first chapter. Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi, chapter 1, verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how, is you, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob. But I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down. And men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. How far-reaching was the impact of the rebellion of Esau? It was eternally far-reaching. The Bible does not mention a single righteous or good Edomite. Not one. Think about it for a moment. Two of the Israelite patriarchs had an Egyptian mother, Ephraim and Manasseh. Moses married a Midianite. Ruth, the Moabitess, and Rahab, the Canaanitess, were in the Messianic line. But all through the Old Testament, the Edomites are continuously pictured as the enemies of God. And nowhere is it more clearly stated than in Obadiah. It comes just before Jonah. Page 1162. <laughs> Obadiah was a prophet who most scholars believe lived probably in the time of Jeremiah. And he spoke just after the destruction of Judah and Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, the Edomites participated in the destruction, or at least gleefully enjoyed the destruction of Judah and Jerusalem, and uh, therefore the prophecy came. If you want to see how gleefully they enjoyed it, you just note down uh, Psalm 137.7 and read that when you get a chance. But look at verse 8 of Obadiah. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountain of Esau? Then your mighty men will be dismayed, O Teman. Now, Teman was one of the sons of Esau. And uh, Teman was a fortress city that was built, apparently, the archaeologists feel, just north of Petra. And uh, was thought to be a city that was the center of great wisdom. In order that everyone be cut off from the mountain of Esau by slaughter. Because of violence to your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be cut off forever. 
On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, you too were as one of them. Do not gloat over your brother's day, the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the sons of Judah in the day of their destruction. Yes, do not boast in the day of their distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their disaster. Yes, you do not gloat over their calamity in the day of their disaster. And do not loot their wealth in the day of their disaster. And do not stand at the fork of the road to cut down their fugitives. And do not imprison their survivors in the day of their distress. For the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. Because just as you drank on my holy mountain, all the nations will drink continually and will drink and swallow and will become as if they had never existed. But on Mount Zion, there will be those who escape and it will be holy. And the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. Then the house of Jacob will be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame, but the house of Esau will be a stubble and they will set them on fire and consume them so that there will be no survivor of the house of Esau for the Lord has spoken. Not a single Edomite named as a good person. Edom destroyed. You go over there today and you, you visit the southern part of Jordan, you go into the land that was Edom and it's a desolation. Even the beautiful rock uh, rose, rose city of, of Petra, uh, which was at least within the realm of what used to be the Edomites, is a, is a tomb in effect today. Esau's name has become synonymous with rebellion. And God held him responsible not only for his own life, but for those who would follow in the path of destruction. What does Jesus say? And we won't turn to it in, in Luke 17. He says that, yes, stumbling blocks will come, but woe unto him who is that stumbling block, because it would have been better for him to have had stones tied to him and cast into the sea than that he would lead one of my children or any of my children into error or destruction. And that's not just talking about leading little children. Of course, it can be interpreted in many ways, but obviously false prophets, those who lead people to destruction, themselves carry the weight of that disaster upon their own shoulders. Judith and Bazemath were obviously not godly women because notice how the chapter ends, that these women were a grief to Isaac and Rebekah. And there's a very important point to understand here. Sometimes we're very critical of Rebekah for what she does as we go on in Genesis and how she, you know, schnookers her husband and uh, gets the blessing for Jacob or helps in, in getting the blessing for Jacob rather than for Esau. But when you look at this background and you have understanding of what took place here, then we have a little more sympathy for Rebekah and we understand she was not going to allow any possibility for Jacob to go the route of Esau. And she would not leave any stone unturned and she would take any measure she needed to take to, to try to be sure that Jacob went the right way. Yeah, it's moving ahead of God. It's, it's, it's you know, trying to take things out of God's hands, but you have to understand the driving force behind this. And when we do so, I think we're a little bit more understanding of what she did. 